Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Masks off, taxes up, and the Fed stays put. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. And as the Dow Jones Industrial Average indicates, investors sold stock up to the very last day of 1986 to beat the higher capital gains tax that takes effect this year, and then started buying stock again in 1987. It was, in fact, the first time in five years that the Dow had risen on the year's first trading day. That was Louis Ruckheiser talking about a rise in capital gains rates over 30 years ago on Wall Street Week. This week, the topic was back in the news as President Biden proposed doing away with them altogether, raising howls of protests from Republicans about what that would mean for investment and for growth. But it's time for corporate America and the wealthiest 1% of Americans to just begin to pay their fair share. Steve Ratner knows a thing or two about investment, managing the personal and philanthropic assets of our founder and majority owner, Michael Bloomberg. And Steve has a more nuanced view of what President Biden's proposal would mean in the real world. As you know, there's been an extraordinary amount as you, uh, of, of wealth created over the last uh, year and change. The market was up 18.5% last year. It's up a good bit again already this year. Uh, yes, that is absolutely wealth. But I think, I think irrespective of that, to some degree, the right question is, how do you think about taxing labor versus capital? And we've done it in a lot of different ways. If you go back to the late 1980s, after the 1986 Tax Reform Act, we actually taxed labor and capital at the same rate. It's 28% was the top rate, my recollection. And then they uh, spread back apart again. We've had capital gains as low as 15%. They're now up to 238 When you add in the Obamacare tax, and so on and so forth. And you can go back and forth about it. But I think the president's basic point 
is that why shouldn't capital be taxed as much as work is taxed? And um, I'd love to have someone tell me why it shouldn't be. Well, the, the rationale, as I understand historically, has been we want to encourage capital investment. And if we give you a break on your capital investment, maybe you'll you'll invest more. Certainly, that's what we're hearing from some Republicans, that if you do this, you're really going to discourage capital investment. That will ultimately uh, really reduce productivity gains. I, I want to be clear that I'm not necessarily advocating that you take the capital gains rate all the way to ordinary income. And I'm not even sure, honestly, that the Biden administration expects it. I think it's going to be a bit like the negotiations that are underway over the corporate tax, where the Biden administration will come out with a pretty aggressive ask, Republicans and moderate Democrats will push back and it'll end up somewhere in the middle. So if you want to guess, my guess is it ends, it ends somewhere in the middle. But to your basic uh, question about discouraging investment, I don't quite uh, buy that argument, which is that right now, first of all, we have excess savings. We have a huge amount of savings in the system sloshing around. What we don't have as much of is demand for capital by businesses that want to invest. They're not the ones who pay the capital gains tax. It's the people like you and me who actually invest the money. And so my response to this would be, okay, fine, you raise the capital gains tax rate. What are the savers going to do differently? Are they going to save less? Are they going to put the money under a mattress instead of investing it? I don't think there's any historic evidence to suggest that whether the capital gains rate was down at 15% or up at 28%, there was any material difference in the amount of of savings being offered for investment that went on in this economy. What about the other aspect of the personal taxation, which is increasing the top rate up to 39.6%, which I believe is actually what President Clinton did way back in 93, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what effect would that have, do you think? I think, uh, yes, I think you're right about that. Look, I've been working, as you have, for 40-some-odd years. I have paid, uh, I've, I've existed in marginal tax rate environments as high as 50%. I've existed in marginal tax rates environments, I think as low as 28, which we just talked about. And it has not affected my appetite for work, my willingness to work, my desire to work. And frankly, watching friends of mine, people that we all run into in our lives, I haven't detected much change in their work ethic either. Again, I, don't, I, I know of no historic evidence to suggest that people work less at higher tax rates than at lower ones. Sure, at some point, it obviously creates distorted behavior and tax shelters and all this kind of stuff. But we're talking about the difference between 37 and 39.6. I think it's really a tiny, tiny difference that without any measurable effect on the economy other than raising some revenue. Steve, take the other side of the ledger. We've been talking about how we pay for it. Let's talk about what we're paying for. President Biden said he's going to make an investment, and that is both infrastructure uh, in a broad sense of infrastructure, but also help with things like child care and elderly care and things. And all of that will be an investment in America that will make us more competitive internationally with a really fundamentally help our economy. How do you assess that argument? We shouldn't kid ourselves about this, David. This is the greatest science experiment ever conducted in the history of economic policy. Uh, we are talking when you combine President Biden's other two plans, let alone the uh, things that were done under President Trump, you're talking about over $5 trillion a year, over some number of years, of additional spending. That is something like six or seven times what the Obama stimulus was. The federal government's annual outlays, and now it's one year versus a number of years, are $4 trillion. So you're talking about an expansion in the scope of scale of government that we've never seen before. I, I've tried to look back at FDR's time. It's hard to get, get the numbers to really um, be understandable. But I suspect this is faster and bigger than even what FDR did in the early days of his presidency. And we, we're in uncharted water. We're in uncharted water about inflation. We're in uncharted water about the debt and the deficit. And to your question, we're certainly in uncharted water about whether all this will work. 
And if it doesn't work, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't deliver for most Americans, then I worry it will set back the cause of progressive government for another generation. We've had 40 years of essentially what I would call restrained government, starting with Reagan and really going even through Clinton and Obama. The idea was restraint, restraint, restraint. This is a full-throated return to progressivism because the last 40 years haven't gone that well for a lot of people. But the next five or 10 years have to go really well. Or again, we're going to go back to another kind of solution. That was Steve Ratner, chairman and CEO of Willett Advisors. Coming up, the pandemic ravages India. What does it mean for the country's global economic ambitions? From Ishwar Prasad of Cornell. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Larry Summers calls it a tale of two worlds. The United States is lifting COVID restrictions. Europe is getting ready to open its borders to vaccinated Americans this summer. And bars and restaurants in Great Britain are open for business again. But countries like Brazil and India are just now facing the worst of the pandemic. Here's Naresh Trehan, the chairman of Medanta. This has happened around the world. I mean, what you estimate and it exceeds that, then naturally the system starts creaking. I mean, it happened in New York. It happened in uh, many cities of the United States. It happened in Italy. It happened in many uh, cities of uh, of Europe. Brazil has now recorded more than 14 million COVID cases and 395,000 deaths. But President Bolsonaro opposes lockdown measures and has tried to reverse restrictions imposed by local authorities. Brazil's Congress has launched an inquiry into the government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. These are places where we have to have a global community because we also have to understand that the viruses that are present there will eventually move out and enter other parts of the country. That's Andy Pekosh with the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. It's a similar story in India. Until March... India was recording fewer daily new cases than countries like Germany and France. But now a giant second wave makes India the world's hardest hit nation. Here's Pawan Munjal of Hero. The situation in India right now is, shall I say, dire all across the country. India is breaking world records with more than 350,000 new daily infections and more than 3,000 deaths per day. But officials estimate that the number could be 10 times higher than that because of lack of testing outside of big cities and poor reporting. 
Prime Minister Modi's leadership is coming into question with the surging caseload. He and his top ministers encouraged vast gatherings of unmasked people at jumbo election rallies and in a month-long Hindu festival that brings millions of pilgrims to a small town on the Ganges. Here's Ramanan Laxminarayan of the Center for Disease Dynamics. I think there was a perception that uh, that COVID had been done and dusted uh, back in January, February uh, of this year, and everything was opened up: the rallies, the the uh, you know the the gatherings, the weddings, uh, the cricket stadia. And I think uh, obviously uh, that was never a good idea at that point in time. And obviously, given the situation right now, it was a mistake. The India story is first and foremost one of human tragedy and what can be done to minimize the losses. But it also raises real questions about how these losses will affect the world's fifth largest and one of the most important emerging economies. For some answers, we turn to Ishwar Prasad, professor of international trade policy at Cornell and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Now, before this uh, um, newest wave of the pandemic hit, India looked like it might be one of the three major economies in addition to the US and China that could actually recover uh, back to its pre-pandemic level of GDP by the end of uh, 2021. And in fact, India would, would have been one of the major economies to possibly register double digit growth, of course, coming off a significant contraction in 2020. But that now looks a little less likely. I think we're going to start seeing uh, business and consumer confidence being affected by this. And there are some signs of that already. And that will certainly hurt business investment, although consumption seems to be holding up quite well. Among foreign investors, too, so far, things have been relatively calm. The rupee has taken a bit of a dip. It's down by about 2 to 3% relative to where it was a month ago. But there hasn't been any substantial decline in the value of the currency or in markets more broadly. So, so far at least, uh, things are relatively more placid on the economic front than they are on the humanitarian front. In the United States and, and elsewhere, a lot of the economic effect was because of a shutdown in the economy, which we had virtually an entire shutdown for a period of time in the United States, which really hit the economy badly. What is the approach right now, Mr. Modi, in India? It doesn't seem that he's shutting it down entirely. What happens if he does? He does seem to be somewhat ambivalent about how seriously to undertake lockdowns at this stage, given the economic cost of the previous um, uh, lockdowns last year. Uh, but I do hear from my friends and associates uh, um, in India that I speak to regularly, um, that there is a great deal of concern, even in places where there isn't a lockdown. So economic activity is uh, beginning to um, see a significant uh, crimp. Um, if things cannot be brought into control reasonably soon, I think it's hard to imagine uh, that there wouldn't be a more significant uh, um, set of shutdowns, which in turn could affect economic activity. And that would certainly uh, make it very difficult for India to achieve um, the growth potential that I think it has for this year. What is the likelihood that this terrible tragedy, humanitarian tra tragedy, could actually change trend growth lines? Because people thought India really was one of the promising emerging markets. That's right. In the short term, I think um, there is still an aspect of uh, um, reasonable snapback. One of the interesting things about um, India's growth is that a lot of it has been powered by um, household consumption rather than private investment. Um, this is, of course, similar to what has been happening in many other economies around the world. But even investment was beginning to come back up earlier this year. The problem is that in the short term, India does not have the sort of luxury that uh, an advanced economy like the U.S. has 
uh, to unleash monetary and fiscal policy to such an extent that it can support short-term growth and also uh, boost long-term productivity and growth. Um, the interesting thing is that over the last year, um, even while the pandemic was coursing through the economy, um, there were some significant reforms that the Modi government did undertake, um, including labor reforms, reforms in terms of foreign capital inflows and foreign direct investment, which I think are going to be far more important for um, long-term growth. But I think the real concern for India right now is whether there is confidence, both among consumers and businesses, that the government is going to get policies right and is going to get the economy out of this dark spot it is in right now. Whether fair or not, uh, certainly investors in the West tend to think about India as an alternative to China in Asia for possible investment. Does what's going on right now, the pandemic, and particularly comparing and contrasting it to what's happening in China, does it make India fall a little bit further behind China in that race? Certainly, the fact that China has been able to control the um, virus very effectively, um, while India, um, while initially seeming to do so, has now um, stumbled very significantly, will color um, both domestic and foreign investors' um, uh, views about prospects for the uh, Indian economy. But still, I think India does have enormous potential. Um, and given some of the structural reforms um, that I referred to earlier that the Modi government has undertaken, if measures can be taken in the short run to get the economy out of the spot it's in right now, I think there, there are pretty good prospects and we can see that investors do seem to be holding on. As I mentioned, we haven't seen big evidence of uh, plunges in the market or huge amounts of capital outflows. Uh, but to sustain that confidence will take some work on the part of the government. Thanks to Ishwar Prasad of Cornell. Coming up, the hard hit restaurant industry is finally in a position to make a comeback. But will the lack of workers get in the way of a recovery now that COVID restrictions are coming off? We ask famed restaurateur Daniel Balud. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Restaurants were just about the hardest hit when the pandemic shut down businesses a year ago now, with estimates of more than 100,000 forced to close permanently. But financial help is on the way from Congress, and restrictions are letting restaurants reopen at least slowly. But it turns out that there's a new hurdle, and that's getting restaurant employees to come back to work. We talked with restaurateur chef Daniel Balud, creator of a stream of high-end and very successful restaurants around the world, including the two Michelin star Danielle here in New York, about how bad the problem is and what can be done. Year and few months ago, I had to furlough about 750 plus people, almost 800 people. And uh, to that, we have rehired more than 230 at this point. And I just uh, hire another 70 people for the new restaurant I'm opening, Le Pavillon, which will happen in early June. Yeah, this is a fish restaurant, isn't that right? Seafood restaurant? Yes. So we will be up at 300 some employees, 350. So it's almost 50% back. We, we should have 50% back by September with reopening other of my restaurants. But uh, there was also a decision on some restaurants not to reopen as well. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry for that. That's happened to so many. There are estimates of as many as 100,000 or more restaurants in the United States have permanently closed because of this. Uh, one of the things that I've talked to some mm -hmm. people in your business about is some difficulties in reopening, not because the of the restrictions, those are coming off now, but because actually it may not be that easy to get all the employees to come back, the wait staff and others like that. Are you having that difficulty? Well, I think everybody is facing that challenges because uh, there's definitely been uh, a shakeup in uh, in the industry. But at the same time, uh, because I still had some employees furlough, I also brought some back. Uh, it, it gave me a chance to, by opening a new restaurant, also bring back more people. And um, I believe that a lot of people want to learn about the industry, hospitality, hospitality industry, restaurant business is the most exciting business in the world. And a lot of young people want to learn about it. And we're looking forward to train also some young people into that. So I believe, yes, it is hard, but also after the summer, definitely people will come back to work and resume uh, their position wherever they were, uh, I believe. That's something I've heard also from some people who run a, a restaurants. And I wonder mm -hmm. if the after the summer is just a coincidence that I believe those supplemental unemployment benefits expire in September. <laughs> is it possible that some people are saying, it, I just as soon stay away for the summer, collect the unemployment, and I'll come back in the fall? It, it has to stop. It has to stop, and people have to go back to work. The office have to bring back people in the office. Of course, it's all gradual, and I think a lot of offices already are trying to bring back people three days a week, and, and they will bring them back to five, I'm sure. I mean, not only the city need that, but the businesses need that. Uh, remote working is uh, not for everyone, not for every company, and I think it does also keep the industry uh, going. What about but wages? We also, I'm sorry. Wages. Well, uh, wages, of course, uh, despite uh, the fact that uh, minimum wage is at 15, I think we have to offer also competitive uh, wages in order to attract talent as well. That is imperative. And uh, we do that, of course. Are you finding a need to, to pay people more in order to encourage them to come off of the beach or the, sh or the, or the shelf, wherever they are? <laughs> yeah, of course. And, and we have been very fortunate. I've been open. All, uh, not all my restaurants, but at least two of my restaurants, Daniel and Barbulu and Episori Bulu, have been open now since almost June last year, and so almost a year ago. And we have been doing well considering its, its limitation that, you know, we have been able to keep people employed and having them well paid and almost earning their salar normal salary. So... I think we are very uh, happy with that, and we think that it's only going to get better. So, so, Chef, what about the supply chain? Because as restaurants closed about a year ago now, there was concerns that some of the supply chains might go away and not come back. Uh, are you having any difficulties getting the supplies no. you need for your restaurants? No, the supply, uh, I think the supply is fine. We are back to normal with that. It don't matter if it's our fishermen or our, our farmers or our uh, suppliers in general. No, we are good with that. Uh, as and, you, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no. And 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 we we had tremendous support also for initiative we have taken to bring back staff, such as creating a foundation, Food First Foundation, with uh, SL Green, Mark Holiday, and we re-employed hundreds of employees in 30 different location restaurants in New York with this foundation and those 
foundation, uh, those employees were making meals to be gifted to many charities and food uh, pantry in New York, including also City Meal, who was also a large recipient that I've been producing. I read actually about that foundation. Does that continue today or is it starting to ramp down? Yes. Oh, yes. No, no, we continue today and and serve the five boroughs as well, uh, including City Meals. Thanks to restaurateur chef Daniel Balud. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We bring in now our special contributor, Larry Summers from Harvard, as we do every week to really finish the week with us. So, Larry, we had the big event perhaps of the week was President Biden's address to that joint session of Congress. What did you make of it? Big event of the week. It may have been the big event of uh, the year. I think it was probably the most consequential first address to Congress by a president uh, since Ronald Reagan declared a redirection of the country in uh, 1981. Uh, The president is betting on a very different role of government in American lives. He's betting on a very different uh, economic philosophy than we've had uh, before. Whether it succeeds or whether it fails, this is uh, hugely consequential. My own view is that the impulses behind it, that government can be a constructive force, that we need much more public investment, that we need much more social protection for middle class families, that we need to strengthen institutions like labor unions that stand up for working people. I think all of that is uh, correct. I am concerned that progressives have a tendency to overreach and that you can, you need to be progressive, but you also need to get the arithmetic uh, right. And I am worried that this program could overheat the economy with some potentially serious economic consequences and some serious political consequences down the road uh, for progressives. David, I think uh, the biggest news for me since I started expressing these concerns two or three months ago, is that I think we're seeing rising evidence of uh, labor shortages. Uh, 
you can see that in small business surveys where we're at record levels in terms of difficulties in finding labor. You can see that in terms of the data on job vacancies, which are at near record uh, levels, levels that usually would go with 3.5% unemployment, not with 6% uh, unemployment. You can see it in a large number of anecdotes uh, that people are telling. You can see it, and maybe this is the best measure, in the fact that workers are quitting at rates they usually quit at during booms, which suggests that this isn't just a sectoral thing, but is a pretty pervasive phenomenon in the economy. And if we're having that kind of job shortage at a time when the economy is still in front of what almost everybody thinks is going to be a very substantial boom over the next six months, I am concerned about inflation and inflation expectations. Well, Larry, on that point, what about the law of unintended consequences? Did we go too far in some of the relief, particularly the supplemental unemployment benefits? We had Daniel Balud, the chef and the restaurateur on, who said, look, he's trying to get people to come back for his restaurants. And they're all saying, talk to me after the summer, because, by the way, that happens to be when those benefits go away. Did we go too far? Yes. Um, it was a unemployment insurance is hugely functional. But, and it's hugely important, and it was the right thing to strengthen unemployment insurance. But we know that if you insure people's houses for more than they're worth, some people will burn down their houses. And if we give people more money for not working than they were getting when they were working, then people are going to stay on the sidelines. And unfortunately, for probably a majority of the people on unemployment insurance, they're getting more money on unemployment insurance than they were getting when they were working. And that's just misdesigned uh, policy. And it's kind of an unforced uh, error that is having consequences. And I hope that when it expires, we'll continue to be reforming unemployment insurance. But I hope and trust that after September, we're not going to have these kinds of above 100% replacement of uh, income rates. I hope also we're going to look at eligibility for unemployment insurance and make sure that the people who are getting it are people who are really ready and willing uh, to work. Uh, we did what was probably necessary a year ago at the height of the COVID panic, so I'm not second-guessing uh, that. But going forward, uh, we're going to need to be normalizing uh, with respect to unemployment insurance and to some extent with respect to benefit payments uh, more generally. Larry, I want to come back to your analogy to Ronald Reagan in 1981. I mean, to oversimplify, Ronald Reagan basically, I think, had a message that basically we need to get the government out of as much of the economy as possible. I think it wasn't he that said uh, government's not the solution to the problem. It is the problem. Are we in danger of going to the other side now and saying that government is the solution to all problems? And not so much as a matter of political philosophy, but as a macroeconomist, does history teach us anything about the proper role and limits the role of government in the economy? David, I, I'm actually pretty sympathetic to most of the areas, helping uh, kids, paying for community college, doing R&D, supporting uh, green uh, investment. 
I'm pretty sympathetic to most of the areas that the president is proposing big expansion. So I'm not with those who believe this is a kind of creeping socialism. I'm more concerned with uh, the pace and I'm more concerned that we try to both improve the rate, the way we spend as well as increasing necessary spending. So if you take an area like infrastructure, yes, we need to spend much more. And I was really glad to see the president uh, talking about it. But I wish he'd been talking also about doing infrastructure more inexpensively, about accelerating the siting of uh, infrastructure, about involving the private sector uh, in uh, infrastructure. I think that we need also, in addition to expanding the scale of government, make sure that government is doing its work as effectively and as efficiently as possible. Uh, Larry, let's wrap it up with a lightning round, as Summer says. Number one, cryptocurrency. Going forward, three years, five years, will it be a larger function of the traditional economy or smaller? I've changed my mind about this. I think it's here to stay. I think more institutions will be uh, engaged with it. I'm not going to pre- predict the price of uh, Bitcoin, but I think uh, crypto and digital digital payments are going to be a larger uh, deal in all our lives than they've been historically. We got uh, first quarter GDP numbers uh, this week. Uh, did they indicate the economy is stronger or not quite so strong as we expected? I think it's an economy on fire. You know, it, GDP was in the was in the sixes, and on top of that, you had massive inventory decumulation, which will be made up next year. You had an increase in imports. So, if you looked at the change in spending, the increase in spending domestically. That was close to being at double-digit rates, and I think that's going to be with us for some time to come. So my sense is that the economy is even more fiery than I had supposed. Okay, Larry, thank you so very much. That is our special Wall Street Week contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. The more things change, the more they stay the same. This week, we witnessed a grand tradition in U.S. politics. It is the presidential speech delivered to a joint session of Congress, usually called the State of the Union speech, but not when it's a new president and it comes a bit later on the calendar to give him a little time to settle into the job. This year, much of the focus was on all that was different, the relatively empty hall, the masks, the fist bumps instead of handshakes, and perhaps most consequential, the presence of two women on the dais behind the president, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, and Vice President Kamala Harris, something President Biden featured right at the very top of his talk. Thank you all, Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President. No president has ever said those words from this podium. No president has ever said those words. And it's about time. Some would say that the president's speech itself went beyond what we normally hear, Building on historic government action to support the economy already in his first 100 days, Mr. Biden doubled down, laying out another $4 trillion worth of programs. That's why I proposed the American Jobs Plan, a once-in-a-generation investment in America itself. This is the largest jobs plan since World War II. 
But for all that was new, there was so much that was familiar and welcome for the continuity that it signaled. The presidential motorcade making its way through the Washington night to a gleaming Capitol building. The sergeant at arms announcing the president. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. The ritual handing up of the copies of the speech to the Speaker and the Vice President. And of course, one side of the aisle repeatedly standing and applauding wildly while the other side sat pretty much with arms crossed and sour faces. All happening in a hall that less than a hundred days ago was being stormed by a mob with Capitol Security drawing their weapons to defend some of the very lawmakers listening to Mr. Biden's speech this week. We'll see how much of the president's ambitious agenda he can get through the Congress. We'll see whether all those taxes come to pass, and if so, whether they dampen economic growth. But whatever comes of it, whether we like where things are headed or not, can't we all celebrate that despite the setbacks, despite the challenges, we keep going? That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.